0: It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where where the truth is.
1: Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm... On your community radio,
2: 3CR. We are still fired up, and we're still talking about revolution.
3: Hello, um, this is the Doing Time Show, 855am,
1: 3CR. Um, I'm Pete, and... Yep, and this is Marissa. Yep. Uh, it's 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. This is Marissa, and we'll be taking you through until 5 o'clock this evening. First up on the show, we're going to be speaking with Brett Collins, who's from Justice Action. Brett is going to be talking about mental health and prisons, and he also wants to talk about the prison newspaper. So we'll speak to him. We Actually, he was the last person that we interviewed um, just before the summer programming, so it's great that he's coming back. Justice Action has done some great work with prisoners and that's based in um, New South Wales. And then after that, we'll be speaking with Anthony Kelly. And he's actually from Melbourne Activist Legal Support. And he's also the Chief Executive Officer at Flemington Kensington Community Legal Centre. And Anthony has done extensive um, coverage with 3CR. And in particular, doing Time Show in regards to um, the IMARC protests, but also in regards to also police police brutality. So we get on to it. Brett? Yep, we'll get on to Brett now. Now, Hi, Brett. Hello, hey,
0: Brett. hey, good morning. Good morning, guys. <laughs> morning. Good morning's right. Oh,
4: crazy times. Crazy <laughs> times. <laughs> it is crazy. <laughs> Indeed
1: it is, Brett. <laughs> yes,
0: it is. Yes. Now, just for, the,
1: just for the sure. benefit of listeners and, and for your benefit too, Brett, I actually have a nifty new computer so if you can hear music, don't worry, because it's just... Uh, OK. ..it's talking. <laughs> so, <laughs> OK, all good. <laughs> Brett, I'm okay, wondering if like you that. could talk about um, justice action and, and discuss what's happening with um, with mental health issues in prisons.
0: OK, well, look, it's, it's one of those big issues, to be honest. I, I just... Um I've always been shocked at the attitude people have towards... Uh, people have you know, mental illnesses or, you know, you can be dubbed as mentally ill. There's no question at all it's much better to be seen as being mad... Or bad than mad. <laughs> to be seen as being um, mad means they really um, regard you as somebody who they don't have to talk with at all, they don't have to negotiate with, they just treat you like a, a lump of flesh. Yeah. And um, so we have a lot of people who are currently sitting inside um, some cells, uh, in, certainly in um, forensic care <laughs> down in Victoria, and some um, in some of the mental health pods and those in those uh, uh, jails down there, who are um, who are uh, scheduled under the Act, um, and uh, and they get uh, forcibly medicated all the time. And we have a series of court cases um, trying to defend people in front of the tribunals, the mental tribunal, mental health tribunal, and, um, and trying to make sure that at least um, people have a choice if they uh, don't want to be medicated. And a lot of people say they, you know, if they're medicated, they, they lose all concentration, lose... They can't think, they get a headache, so they have no sexual arousal. They have a whole range of things that um, affects their normal life. And they, they say, look, I'd much prefer to be locked in a so cell, leave me alone... Just mm-hmm. keep the health authorities out of here and leave me alone and some so we've been increasingly had been dragged into the mental health area and some um, and very much uh, been negotiating with the psychiatric hospitals the health departments and and uh, and uh, and that's true just to, to make sure that um that the average prisoner doesn't um, uh, end up uh, on medication that is forced on them and and so um, and, uh, the uh, the wash of uh, the sort of um, uh, a biomedical model about uh, uh, solving people's social problems by just giving them an injection—that that that's, uh, that sort of whole model doesn't continue and, and sort of wash you into the into the and justice area.
1: Specifically, what what exactly what locations or, or are you actually referring to when you speak about people with who are okay. having injections? Well,
0: well, I, I, look. I, I really we're talking about an area which is in like such a major area, and like the more we go into, the worse it still has appeared. But so people in the community are going under community treatment orders, but people also inside the prisons are increasingly being being possibly medicated, right. just as a just the easy way of dealing with people. And so, so what we've um, we've just uh, just engaged in at the moment is a is a very significant reference by the what's called the Productivity Commission, which is a, Australia's think tank. I'm yes. um, arguing that, that even if you're in a psychiatric hospital, even if you are in a, in a prison inside yeah. the mental health unit, you are still entitled to be listened to. They can't treat you as though you're just going a flesh. And, and also you, um, they spend so much money on you, like over twice as much money is spent for people who are inside psych units, inside prisons or inside you know, uh, a psychiatric hospitals. Yes. over so twice as much. And their conditions are a lot worse. They have no education, none. And um, so the whole idea of education for people uh, inside a hospital to get it uh, and to access a whole lot of just normal, um, even just the entitlement to have other forms of treatment um, is just totally negated. So we're actually in front of the Productivity Commission at the moment, um, uh, arguing very strenuously that that there should be um, a consumer community representation yes. that's in fact the people themselves should be entitled to vote on who is the right and um, who is their representative and they should be able to have a voice at the highest level um, because if they are, um, are not criminal right they're entitled to a whole lot of other benefits which entitles them to a proper representation entitles them to argue about what they would prefer instead of being medicated they could for example um, learn um, cognitive behavioral therapy or even even people to start tolerating them for a change instead of feeling them as though they're sort of, um, some sort of subhuman. So it's a big area, and it's one in which... Uh, it is uh, a very uh, we... big
1: area. And indeed, oh, Brett... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you so, know Brett,
0: and the who, lawyers... who, Sorry to like, interrupt, sorry,
1: but sorry. who would be like a specific example? Like, you're speaking generally, but what sorts yes. of... Um, what prisoners, just briefly, has, has Justice well, Action yeah. been working with in regards to this? Because you're basically talking about um, the false... Like being forced to have injections, being being deprived of education because of mental health. But what's the scene there? Set the setting for us. What well, prison is okay. it? That's,
0: that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Let me let me just say this: at the moment, there was a, there was a inquiry into um, some prisons up here in New South Wales, yeah. and um, and in, at Parkley Jail, Major Jail, seven hundred prisoners in the jail. Now, the report from the Inspector-General, the Full House report, said that 500 of those 700 prisoners in the jail were taking some sort of medication which was not a, a, replacement, a replacement medication. Yep. So we're talking about a very large portion of those prisoners were taking, and you're talking now about antipsychotic medication, a whole range of um, different sorts of medications which makes life possible. In other words, the life is so miserable inside prison that people are taking every chance they can to get out of it, yep. and um, whether or not they want it. And so that, that says something from the very beginning that um, that the uh, the idea that people can you know just zombie out, um, you know. First of all, if they want to do it, and you know, I don't think this, I think this is good, not a good idea. Although I'm not serving time, so I can't um, I can't make a judgment that other people may not judge, but you know, or may not make. But then those people who have been forced to be medicated. Who, actually, who otherwise would rather stay in a cell, leave me alone, thank you, health department. Now, that, proportion is very large proportion, and, and now we're talking about hundreds of people and, and the number of people who are threatened with forced medication. But, um, and if they don't they don't take the medication that, they're, in, and they're, that they're, they're required to take, then they'll be taken to a certain area where it's scheduled so they can be forced, held down by eight nurses, and and then injected in the buttocks once every two weeks. And we think that is appalling abuse. Look, it is
1: appalling in indeed. Yeah, it yeah. is and, and the, the health so,
0: departments appalling.
1: Yeah, and, so uh, the oh, inquiry, Brit, what, what is? who's doing yeah. the inquiry? And well, the inquiry is run by, it's run by the Productivity Commission, which is
0: really Australia's think tank. It looks at things like, you know, all the economic, social, a whole range of environmental issues. And uh, they've been required now to look at mental health. And so our particular interest is talking about mental health in the forensic area. So people who are charged with offences found not guilty due to mental illness or people who are already inside prison and found lately after that found to be mentally ill. Now, they're, they're people, it's a very grey area. Um, you know, who's oh, mentally ill? Who's not? Oh, come on. Mm. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the issue is To be, who is at risk of serious harm to themselves or others? That's the defining issue. Um, and so, uh, and that's a very grey space. That um, if you're a management problem, uh, they'll treat you as a, like a mentally ill person, and then zombie you out in the corner. And, um, and we want to make sure that is not happening. Um, we want to. That's a fight definitely worth taking on.
1: So, if people want to read the document from the Productivity Commission, when when will that be available, and can they actually get to it? <laughs>
0: listeners. It, 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 it's already actually on, the, on oh, the website. Obviously people inside the prisons can't see it but the, no. it's on the website. So like, at the moment I think about 700 submissions are being put wow. up um, and, and so as the Productivity Commission's review has, is exposed then people are responding to that review. In fact we at the moment we're examining other people's submissions. And analysing that really carefully, but this is a big one. It's a big one, and what we're hoping from it, and the, and the productivity commission is treating us very seriously. They came and had two meetings with us, and what we're hoping from this is that we will end up with some entitlement to be for a representation representation from the wards themselves, and for that to be funded, so they will have a right to proper representation which they can vote for, and then present it the highest at the highest level, because they have all entitlements. They should have more entitlements than people in prison. They, they have the entitlement of, in fact, there's an obligation by the government and by, um, by you know, health department, corrective services, and to make sure these people have the best of uh, attention. And that doesn't mean an injection in the buttocks. It means um, on the terms of the person who is supposed to be ill, they should be entitled to get the support that they need. And that's a, carefully stated, a careful statement, um, which is based upon what the health department itself says.
1: I see what you mean. So so um these are facilities in New South Wales, is that right?
0: Oh, that's right. Look, it's part of it, but look in every state and territory, the same issue occurs. Like friends of down in Victoria, has the same rules. Like we're dealing dealing with the with the minister for mental health down there. He presents himself quite as quite a reasonable man. I mean, like we're actually asking him to contribute to the newspaper. Uh-huh. So, um, tell us about so the newspaper,
1: Brett, because I know that's something you sure. want to talk about. Can you talk about the prison newspaper and what's happening with that?
0: Look, absolutely. Look, the, the newspaper just asked, it's been around for uh, quite a few years now. And so we put the last edition out in, in May, and we're just fitting ourselves for the next one. And the last one was all about education and education and a chance for you know, people to use their time properly inside the, inside the prison, they are in a cell, um, to have a chance to, to do their courses, learn you know, whatever they want to do, you know, whether it's a language or accounting or, or art or you know, whatever they want to do. But they should be entitled, are entitled. Right, um, to have access um, to whatever um, they want to read about in their, in their personal development. Now, that hasn't happened. And um, so we are, at the moment, we have a team of four people um, working just on that, developing um, the entitlements of uh, people in prison to, to do the course that they want. Yeah. And so um, we're found in very little doing very little of that. Yes. In fact, in, in um, all states and territories, they, they only do what the corrective services itself actually requires them to do, very minimal, and, um, and there and no correspondence courses anywhere in Australia.
1: So with but the news, yeah, go on. Yeah, sorry, uh, I but was just going to ask you. Universities is different, and, yeah.
0: and the universities is different. So we we actually fanning up to the universities and and seeing what universities are prepared to enrol people in prison, and um, and the newspapers oh, then is, is following through right on on late on the latest edition, which is we said to everyone we will find what education courses are available Australia wide, and and we will tell people who write to us what they, can, what they can, can do and what the contacts are, what the courses are. So we're actually in the process now of making sure that anyone, wherever you, whether you're in, um, uh, up in Northern Territory or Victoria or Tasmania, that you will have access to a course that you will want and which can be fa- paid for by the government. So, the, so HECS fees, university fees, can, enroll, can pay for the enrolment for anyone in prison as long as they have their basic, basic, um, you know, the earlier courses in place, and, and people can learn what those earlier courses are, and then there's access. There's fantastic, access. but the access is access is limited. That's the only problem.
1: <laughs> it is limited, and so look, just so that to summarise, Brett, because we've actually covered a lot of ground here. So yep, basically, absolutely. for the for the for the benefit of listeners, we're, you're listening to the Do and Time show, and we're doing an interview with Brett Collins from Justice Action, and so far, what we've discussed is the mental health. In prison, issues in prison, and not just prisons but facilities, and looking at also um, education and the fact that there's little access. Now, there's just one question about the newspapers. In, In case people are listening from prison, how can they get access to the newspapers and how can they contribute?
0: Look, the easiest thing is really just send us send us a, a letter and then we'll, we'll come back to them. I mean, now we have, like, I'll give you the PO boxes. So it's PO Box 20014, World Square, right, New South Wales 2002. So it's once again, PO Box 20014, right, World Square, New South Wales 2002. And just um, yes, if they were to send us a letter, we're happy. We'll respond to them, and, and um, we've got a team of people here. It's probably about uh, probably twenty people here today, so quite a quite a big team. Lovely. And um, so you know, we always respond to people's letters, and we also if people want to have access to the internet, we have we set up email addresses for people. It's been running since 2013. So if anyone wants to write a letter to us, we'll explain to them how they can get access to email and have their own almost like a Facebook page, right? So um, it's called iExpress. And it's um, it's a platform of which we're very proud. Links up a little bit to the newspaper, but it's um, it's a very important part of you know, our offering to to our community inside the prisons and the hospitals.
1: Oh, okay. Now I get it. So you you're talking about the hospitals as well. Yes, That's all, also included like in the work. Hospitals.
0: Absolutely, no. So no, we've, we've found more and more. There's a movement between between the um, hospital systems, the locked wards, and yeah. uh, and the prisons. And so, so, you know, we we tend to we found that if you're detained in one or the other, you definitely need support. So we you know we we're, we're in behind um, that team as well.
1: And could you give us just a really quick update on Miriam?
0: Yes, Miriam Merton. Oh, <laughs> the Miriam Merton case, of course. Well, you know, that's that's um, uh, in some ways a bit of a touchstone to the work we're doing in in mental health. I mean, we you know, we um, came in behind you know, the uh, um, the case of this woman up in uh, in uh, uh, up in Lismore, Lismore based hospital in New South Wales who was treated so badly, but but um, the treatment by the nurses uh, was captured by CCTV. The woman was just abandoned and um, hitting her head against the wall and died. Um, but um, no one uh, no one um, understood what had occurred until they saw. Saw the CCTV footage and then realised that um, these nurses just didn't care about this um, sick woman who was uh, who was hitting her head um, on the walls in the in the, in the corridor. Had stripped her naked, she was defecating on the floor, and they were just they just mopped the floor. Um, while she was uh, she was uh, in that in that condition, so so after um, the death and the inquest, um, we came in behind and said there has to be something changing here, and the ministers agreed with us, and we ended up with the six points that we thought were very important, and we we yeah. worked really hard and behind those, and um, it hasn't been completed yet, but um, that's an ongoing campaign which is you know, up on our website if people want to know more of it, if you're outside they can see, um, but otherwise it's around mental health. And um, the re cases cases uh, has uh, six reforms, including, you know, holding onto your own phone, uh, including having a consumer worker right in to give you a hand before they inject you, and a few other things which are very significant for people who, people who are in that in that
1: situation. Brett, thank you so much for coming onto the program. It's always good to kick-start... You know the year. I mean, it's February already, but it's going quick. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know, <And> to <laughs> <laughs> oh, to, too
0: fast. To have you
1: involved and um, it's, keep up the good work,
0: Bruce. I'd love you to speak with you again and, um, and to all your listeners. You know we, um, you know, we're into a busy year. You know, every year is a busy year, but absolutely, and um, you know, we to raise the pace. We're not, we're not going to slow it down. That's for sure.
1: And look after yourself as well, Brett. Thanks, Brett.
0: Okay, thank you, Marissa. Thank okay, you. All the
1: best. Bye bye. Okay. And that was Brett Collins from Justice Action speaking about newspapers in prison and looking at the mental, mental health, in particular um, a, a woman that had died in care and a little bit about the inquest. We've got Anthony Kelly um, coming up next and I'll give you a formal introduction about that topic later on let go to a. And home. I know Peter, you haven't had a chance to play music last week, so. <laughs> no. Um, yes, we'll go. We'll go to a. Should we go to a track or an announcement first? Go to a track and then. Announcement. Awesome.
3: Ah, uh, this is Spy vs. Spy. They're they oh, back in the eighties, sort of a band that used to play with Mineral Oil and stuff. And this is um, Dark Water. I'll just play it now. Um, they're a Melbourne band. When the
5: is Chains with that far around double and twice Cause through your veins the flicker of fire Reflected in
0: The federal government has just announced plans for a radioactive waste dump in Kimba on Bungala country. BHP's is expanding the Olympic Dam uranium mine. Now is the time to join the radioactive resistance. Be Hit the road with Friends of the Earth Melbourne's Nuclear Free Collective as we travel to frontline communities and see how the nuclear industry impacts people. The Radioactive Exposure Tour will run from April 10 to 19 this year. More details on melbournefoe.org.au slash radtour2020 or contact us on radexposuretour at gmail.com. Fo's Nuclear Free Campaign
1: is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with the Doin' Time show. It's approximately 4.28. Anthony Kelly has actually been delayed. So we'll be speaking to him at around 20 to 5. But in the meantime, and so we'll be speaking with Anthony about the IMARC protests and looking at police conduct or rather police misconduct. But in the meantime, while we're waiting for Anthony, I actually have a really good article and I may not be able to read all of it, but I think that listeners need to have their attention drawn to it. It's from Sydney Criminal and it's about TJ Hickey. And as listeners would be aware, the anniversary of T.J. Hickey's death happened on the 14th of February 2020. And the article is entitled, Calls for a Parliamentary Inquiry into T.J. Hickey's Death, 16 Years On. And Friday the 14th of February 2020 marks 16 years since Thomas T.J. Hickey was thrown from his pushbike and impaled upon a fence in inner city Sydney, whilst being chased by two New South Wales police paddy wagons, Redfern, in Redfern, <coughs> excuse me, in honouring his memory, the Hickey family have arranged a memorial march through the streets of Redfern on the day and the event is also a demonstration calling for a parliamentary inquiry into the teen's death as the findings of the inquest are full of holes. In the moments preceding the fatal incident, two police paddy wagons were patrolling Redfern and Waterloo hunting for an identified offender who'd recently robbed someone out the front at Redfern Station when TJ appeared on his bike. Down the line, there's no suggestion that TJ was the actual thief. Of course, officers may have initially suspected he was, and the coroner found that Redfern mounted a footpath and followed the boy down a pedestrian laneway, despite that they didn't. The 17-year-old boy, Gamilara boy, died in hospital the following day. This sparked the Redfern riots, which saw the local Aboriginal community vent its anger over the incident and numerous prior injustices, and it's thought the fallout from the riot weighed heavily on the inquest findings. A following, not a pursuit. The Redfern riots were on a scale not often seen in this country. Provoked by the understanding that TJ lost his life whilst under whilst under police pursuit, rioters hurled project, projectiles, bricks, fireworks and bottles at Redfern police. Around 40 officers were injured and more than 25 people were arrested. What emerged of the subsequent coronial inquest was TJ rode past Redfern and then headed down Renwick Street, which ends in a, in a cul-de-sac. But there is a footpath that leads to Philip Street. The young man took this route and so too did the New South Wales Police paddy wagon. At the end of the path was a gate with an opening for pedestrians. TJ flew through it with the police vehicle behind. That led the boy onto Phillips Street with Redfern 17, making its way down the road. And TJ took a path beside a residential building where he was impaled. There are differing accounts of these last moments. There are assertions that the back tyre of the bike was hit by a police vehicle, which threw TJ onto the fence, and the two officers in Redfern neglected to mention they'd mounted the kerb and drove down the path in their, in their incident reports. During the inquest that took place just months later, then-New South Wales State Coroner John Aberthy found that the constables in Redfern 16, driver Michael Hollingsworth and Marie Reynolds, were following the boy down the path just moments before his death, but they weren't pursuing him. Albany labelled the death a freak accident and the coroner did so against a political backdrop that had seen both New South Wales Labor Premier Bob Carr and Australian Prime Minister John Howard publicly asserting that there was no evidence that a police pursuit had taken place. A questionable distinction... If you've got a person in a car going behind someone on a bike, if the car is going down the same road, then that's pursuing, Indigenous Social Justice Association ISJA Secretary Royal Bassey told Sydney criminal lawyers. Two witnesses said they saw the car going behind TJ. Those witnesses were never called to the inquest, added the long-term activist, who's organising Friday's Memorial March, along with TJ's mother, Gail Hickey and there's much contention over the distinction the inquest made between being followed and pursued. Then New South Wales Police Commissioner Ken Morney reportedly told the ABC that in layman's terms there's a very clear distinction between the way the words are used, but he didn't seem to specify what that actually is. Bassey also brought up questions around the way police handled proceedings after TJ became impaled on the fence. Instead of leaving him there so paramedics could remove him, they pulled him down. And when police rescue arrived prior to the ambulance, they sent them away. They were not supposed to remove TJ from the impalement because that's a rule for those types of cases, Mr Bassi made clear. The only way they can be removed is by the ambulance or rescue. And in many cases, they don't even remove them. They cut the spikes. Set up to fail. Recommendations six, recommendation 6 and 41 of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody Provide a clear definition of what constitutes a custody death, which includes the death of a person who dies or is fatally injured in the process of that person escaping police custody. While New South Wales police protocols didn't permit paddy wagons like Redfern 16 to engage in pursuits, Constable Hollingsworth refused to testify at the inquest on the grounds that he might incriminate himself. The coroner permitted this. Whilst his colleague, Miss Reynolds, stated, "I don't recall so many times during the coronial hearings that it was remarked upon." On delivering his findings, the coroner set out that it was difficult to assess what Redfern sixteen did on the day, as Hollingsworth didn't testify. However, it was Abney himself who excused the officer from appearing as a witness, as he couldn't be confident that he'd be reliable. The Constable had previously given three contradictory statements regarding the incident. An Inquiry with Teeth A parliamentary inquiry can call witnesses and they can't refuse to give testimony, Mr Bassie said. The story that I can get in trouble for what I say doesn't apply in a parliamentary inquiry. The activist explained that following the 2004 inquest, there were two further investigations carried out that weren't open to the public. Both the 2014 and the 2018 inquiries resulted in the conclusions of the inquest being upheld. Istja and Fighting and Resistance Equally Fire are running the Black Deaths in Custody BRIC campaign. It's pushing for changes to the way Aboriginal deaths in custody cases are handled by the coroner so that incidents like TJ's death aren't simply dismissed as freak accidents. We need a parliamentary inquiry to call on the officers, the ambulance paramedics and the police rescuing person that were there, Bassi included. We don't accept accident as a reason of death. And that's the end of that article. It's nearly time for Anthony to um, be interviewed now. But I really wanted to read that out really to honour TJ's death. And that article was actually written... Before the march, so um, I'm hoping we're hoping actually to get a a report back of that march pretty soon over the next couple of weeks. Um, was, that, was
3: that Sydney Criminal Lawyers, not Sydney Criminal? I think
1: Sydney Criminal Lawyers. That's correct.
3: Yeah, I sent it to you. I probably just you did.
1: You did. And yeah. so, what is the name of it?
3: Sydney Crim- Criminal Lawyers.
1: Sydney Criminal Lawyers. It's a Facebook. Page. Thank you so much. I mean, not Facebook. Actually, you know, I've never seen. I've really tried to contact them, and I can't get in touch with them.
3: Oh, don't worry about that. We're we not. need
1: to actually work that out
3: yeah, we will.
1: and see if we can get interviews for that. It's approximately 4.36. I'm just going to give a very brief intro uh, in regards to okay. Anthony Kelly and the the lead-up to that interview. And as I, as I said at the beginning, we're going to be interviewing him in the capacity of Melbourne activist legal support. MELS, which is an excellent network that provides training for legal observers. And I'm just going to read out a little bit of the introduction of the IMARC report that was written last year um, in regards to the protests. So, Melbourne Activist Legal Support fielded a team of legal observers at protest events at the International Mining and Resources Conference, IMARC, that took place at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. South Wharf in Melbourne, Victoria. The conference and the process events surrounding it took place from Monday 28th to the evening of Thursday, 31st October 2019. Legal observers were present at the site on the Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of the event from 6.30am until mid-afternoon each day observing, monitoring and recording police conduct and interactions with protesters. The team observed several hundred Victoria police members working in different public order response team Units, arrest teams, the mounted branch, police horses, the evidence gathering team, surveillance and witnessed multiple arrests by police over the Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. This report is designed to report upon and assess the potential and actual impacts of police actions, tactics and approaches in terms of human rights, health and other impacts as well as assisting all parties in their analysis and understanding of the IMARC protest event itself.
3: We have got Anthony on line.
1: Yep, that's really good. I'll just, um, I'm just reading out yep. um, the rest, of, just a little bit more. Um, so it's a public document, and it, it, this document can be provided to media. So we're going to speak with Anthony. And just one last thing, it's also the report is also based upon the first hand observations of the team, and it's going to be looking at um, police misconduct. Oh. Hello, Anthony. Welcome to the program.
6: Hi, Marissa. Thanks for having me.
1: It's lovely to have you. Now, um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about this report that was submitted. Well, not have you submitted? Has a report been submitted yet? The IMARC report? In a, in a way, we've just
6: distributed it to quite a few um, uh, non government organisations, human rights bodies, the Human Rights Commission. It goes to Victoria Police Command as well as the Professional Standards Command. Oh, good. And the and it goes to IBAC, which is the Independent uh, Broad Based Commission Against Corruption. And uh, it also is, was submitted as part of a, uh, uh, a an NGO shadow report into the uh, Universal Periodic Review of Australian government's human rights record, that um, is being heard in the United Nations later this year.
1: Well, I'm glad to so, hear yeah, it.
6: Goes, it. To, goes to quite a few different places where we um, that are, you know both that, that we think. Um, need to understand what's going on at these sort of protest events and uh, also decision-makers and bodies. It it also goes to um, the police minister and um, to various other parliamentarians that are interested in this sort of stuff too.
1: That's fantastic, actually. So, Anthony, I believe that this report really talks a lot about the um, in the context of deep problems with public order policing in Victoria that have been evident over many years. Can you talk about that?
6: Sure. Yeah. So we've been tracking uh, policing really for the last uh, eight or so years. We, we formed after Occupy Melbourne um, back in 2011. Uh, we came out of the uh, Occupy Melbourne legal support team that was, um, you know, present down at C- the city square and and the first report that um, you know, well, they put out a report in 2012 uh, about, you know, called Occupy Policing. And um, so since then we've been tracking public order policing quite intensely over a range of different protest events. And uh, what we're seeing more and more is is sort of what's been happening around the world as well. And, and criminologists and researchers have started to call it um, strategic incapacitation, which is a policing approach that's designed to make sure protest movements remain small. In a way, they use it for a whole variety of tactics and approaches to... Um, prevent protest movements getting larger. And that's mm. something that, you know, as you can imagine, is in, inherently undemocratic, let alone
0: infringing Absolutely. on basic human rights. Yeah.
1: So they're wanting to keep them small and they're also trying to um, obviously stop protesting.
6: Well, not to, the, not to that extent. So, so Victoria Police are obligated to um, protect the right for peaceful assembly and political expression under the Charter, uh, and police do a whole range of things every day to sort of facilitate protests. So that you know they stop traffic and they cordon you know cars and they um, make sure protests are done safely in the city. So there's there's no problem with that um, that sort of traffic control and facilitating um, safe protests. But what they do in a whole range of different movements uh, is uh, undertake tactics which are designed to minimise disruption and to prevent ac- um, actions. Sort of um, uh, when, when, uh, when protests move into unfamiliar forms of protest, such as you know occupations and um, 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 you know city blockades and these the sort of blockade that we saw at IMARC. Uh, and they might use a whole range of tactics to prevent protest movements. Um, expanding. And what we're, what we're also seeing is the use of uh, assertive arrest strategies and charging um, activists long after the event. And we haven't seen this for quite a while. It's not, it's not unheard of, of course, but following up after an event, uh, you, you know, using the evidence that they've collected, video evidence and so forth, and um, uh, knocking on people's doors, contacting activists, bringing them in for interviews and either threatening or laying uh, various charges after the fact.
1: Did this happen after the IMARC protest specifically?
6: Yeah, that's right, yeah. So it's happening at the moment. So several people, okay. you know, um, eight and potentially more people have been contacted by various police units uh, in relation to IMARC. They've been asked to come in for interviews and they've been threatened with various charges. Now, as far as we know, no charges have actually been laid.
1: And this is um, after the I've event?
6: That's right, yeah, so after the event. And it's happened at various other protest events in Victoria after the event. And it's a way for police to really sort of assertively enforce various laws that uh, are rather than design, rather than having any sort of public safety or um, you know, actual on the ground um, for preventing disruption or anything at the, at the time, they're designed to hamper and dissuade activists from undertaking these sort of protest events. So that's purely a, um, a, a tactic that's designed to uh, dissuade activists and hamper them. And that's, that gets, that's bordering on political repression, and one of the ways we're seeing it. So that's one of the things that we're tracking as part of our Melbourne Activist Legal Support work is tracking these sort of uh, policing approaches over time and um, how impactful they are and also how they might be infringing on basic civil and democratic rights.
1: I was about to say, in regards to democratic rights, and not that I want to speculate here, but could it be that f- for the future, this could become a breeding ground to try and demonize activists and charge, w- charge them with domestic terrorism that, that happened It's happened in America, and I 'm wondering whether yeah, Australia is yeah. following in the footsteps there, you know with the Earth Liberation well, yeah. Front.
6: In a way, yes, yeah. So, we've, so the, the range of laws that are available to police can be used in any particular time. We've seen police, um, use a variety of quite archaic laws. So, besetting is one that was used re- been used recently. Um, unlawful assembly is a law that, um, has been threatened recently, which is, you know, quite an old common law that hasn't been used for quite a while and directly contradicts the charter. It pred- predates the human rights charter. So, um, it looks like they're clutching at a range of different um, chart potential charges in order to hamper the growth and the strength of these sort of emerging movements and they're particularly worried of course about the emerging climate and climate movement because as we're seeing around the world um, uh, ordinary people are really standing up for climate justice and, and, uh, and against ecosystem collapse and we're going to be seeing a lot more of this sort of um, uh, movement work, so so there's no no um, surprise that police are looking at ways in which they can uh, restrict its growth. Uh, the the idea is that they want to um, maintain the size of these protest movements so that they can control them. Of course, that's the operational imperative that police have. That of course, police maintain police maintain control over these protests. Of and when course. they get out of control, is that's that's when the police become really worried, and it's uh, and again they have a whole range of um, force. Um, tools and application that they can apply uh, in those sort of circumstances.
1: And I'm wondering why protests get out of control. Could it be that um, the police use unnecessary aggressive arrests and unlawful use of police powers?
6: Yeah, re- research around the world has borne that out. That um, that police, if they if police take an attitude that a, a protest is like a riot, then it's more likely to. Um, uh, to become that sort of un- uncontrolled reaction, and you know the police use of horses, for instance, that I mark created all these tumultuous surging, you know, crowd, all this justifiable anger, uh, which created much more ca- chaos than was necessary. They they turned their police actions turned um, picket lines where people were linked up in front of a building into surging, you know, crowds that was that were. Um, that were in distress from both the capsicum spray and the horses, and the and the pushing and shoving by police. So uh, we see that a lot of protests that the police tactics themselves generate chaos, and um, um, yeah, it's something that police really need to learn. Um, that it's um, you know it's often much better to have a very much a hands off approach. But um, yeah, they, there an there is an operational imperative that police have.
1: Would you say then that there's there's a rapid expansion of the public order response team?
6: Yes. So we've been seeing that expansion over the last five or ten to five years, really. Um, so much more dedicated training. Uh, they're able to... Um, the sheer force of numbers that we see at these sort of protests um, is an indication... ..is another indicator of this sort of strategic in- incapacitation approach that um, they, they'll use all the... Um, numbers available to them to cordon and control a protest group so that other people can't join it. It's like a peddling type thing, but also that they can um, surround and, and uh, make sure that they can control the protest. Um, and, it, and that in itself deters members of the public from joining in. It creates the impression that the protest is dangerous and illegal and uh, it uh, generates a whole range of public perception issues that the movements then have to deal with. it's essentially it helps to demonise protest groups.
1: It's very interesting that this heavy-handed tactics... I mean, they've happened over the years, of course, but the tactics seem to have been a lot more heavy-handed last year during the IMARC protests. And I'm not surprised, given that the coalition government really wants um, coal to be at the top of the agenda. Hmm. Um, So, yeah...
6: So so one of the things we say is that the the policing response is de- dependent on a huge range of factors. Uh one of them is the political context of the, of the day and the time, um the media framing of the protest and mm. the police can, you know, play into that and manipulate that through a whole range of communication um before the event. Um it also, you know, deter it's is also determined by the um Who's in the protest movement itself? Right? What sort of sections of society they represent? How accepted they are by mainstream society, and a whole range of other factors. The training the police have, the um, you know the equipment that they're they're tools with, all these sorts of things play into the sort of strategies and tactics the police will uh, use. And only some of them are under the control of the the protest movement itself. Some of them are much wider uh, civil society issues about how we. Um, you know, how we maintain and and constrain policing from being uh, authoritarian and and, um, uh, anti-democratic.
1: Democratic. Democratic. What's democratic anyway? Maybe we need to save that for another show. (laughs) It's approximately 4.50 and we're listening to an interview with Anthony Kelly um, from Legal... Sorry. Oh.
6: Anthony, Melbourne help activists. me.
1: My computer's gone blank.
6: Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Here we go.
1: There. Melbourne Activist Legal Support. Um, <laughs> anyway, so getting back to it, what do you think... I mean, because the report argues that there needs to be more preventable arrests and more selective strategies um, working towards a human rights model. Would you say that's true?
6: Well, well, the human rights obligations that Victoria Police have is one of the ways in which... We, we want to make sure that police, um, treat people, you know, humanely and with respect to these rights. And they're hard fought for civil and political rights over many generations of, of activists. So we, we need to really hold the line on these sorts of things. We do have a right for, uh, peaceful assembly. We've got a right for, 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 um, political expression and political communication. And, um, they're enshrined in various bits of legislation in Victoria, but also in the Victoria Police Manual. So we need to make sure that, at the very least, they stick to their own guidelines and the use yeah. of force guidelines and their human rights obligations. And so we're... we're at the very least, we're, we're pushing back on those. Where we see police overreaching their powers and their obligations under the Charter, we're, we're seeking to hold them to account. And um, that's, that, that's that sort of vital political space that we have to for movements to... Um, maintain and, and work towards an effective democracy.
1: So what's um, Melbourne Activist Legal Support going to do in regards to getting these people together that have, where they, they've been knocked, you know, where they knock on, the police have knocked on the doors? Is there going to be a media campaign to expose this?
6: Well, we're tracking it and we're hoping to report on it um, at some point soon. Um, with The IMARC Legal Support Team are doing a very good job There's a um, um, for those of you who haven't heard about it already, IMARC um, have been doing a lot of uh, follow-up and support for all the arrestees. There's a, um, on the 12th of March, another court appearance. There's another um, uh, Court Solidarity Day where people are um, uh, are going along to the magistrate's court to support those that are um, facing charges. And they've also, IMARC have also put out a, um, a notice saying that if you're contacted by police in relation to IMARC, then let them know. Okay. I can read out the SD support number if you like.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sure. Before you do sure. that, what t- it's, it's approximately 453, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Keep going, Anthony, the arrest number. I,
6: sure. So the, the IMARC arrest um, arrest support number for the team is 431 319 and so they're asking people to contact that number if they get contacted by police. But also they, they remind people that it's totally within everyone's right to give a, a no-comment interview. So police are seeking evidence when they ask when they ask people to come in for an interview. Um, they want to know that you're there, and they want to know who else was there and what you were doing there. So a no-comment interview um, protects your right not to incriminate yourself. And so... Um, And the other thing, of course, is that you don't have to go in for an interview if they are straight away. But uh, people are, you know, having their own, um, making their own choices along with that. And there's a range of um, um, uh, other links for advice that the IMARC blockade IMARC team have put on their Facebook
1: page. Thank you so much, Anthony. And it's good that you've read out the numbers of that number of that resource. And indeed. just be careful because of the fact that the this is definitely a divide and conquer. Just one last question in regards to the continued misuse of OC aerosols, dangerous use of police horses, weaponry, and excessive use of, um, of force. Have injuries been tracked as well? The, the injuries that the police have inflicted on protesters.
6: Mm-hmm. Not not as much as we would like. So the. Um Police have to fill out use-of-force forms when they use capsicum spray and other forms of force. Uh, those are routinely under-reported and they're not, you know, they're not filled out anywhere near enough but there is some sort of recording process that police have about their use of force. Um, now, as movements, we don't do that very well about tracking injuries or so forth, so we do our best after through our incident reports and so do the uh, medics and first aiders, but um, there's really a lack of, you know, solid data on that. Um, And, you know, we we are working on systems where we can record those sorts of injuries and track them over time.
1: Absolutely. We haven't got them yet. Anthony, it's great to have you on the show. We've got about two minutes left of our show. Thank you so much for coming on and I'm hoping you can talk to us later on because we certainly do need to provide coverage um, about this situation.
6: Indeed. indeed. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks Thanks
1: a lot. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Bye bye. And that was Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Support, speaking about IMARC at last year and the far-reaching, the far-reaching deep problems that have happened in the police force, and indeed in regards to strategic, strategic blunders that police have made in regards to arrests and excessive use of force and violations of human rights. We've yep. got about a minute left. Um, it's goodbye from Marissa,
3: and see you all next week.
1: See you next week, every yeah. Monday from four to five for the Do and Time Show. We're going to go out now with a theme sang- song, "Black Fella, White Fella" from the Rumpy Band. Beyond Zero up next. Bye. Bye.
3: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne,
5: Australia.
3: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and salut babette.